Hi, welcome to the Lawcast. My name is Melanie Thorley and I'm the director of MJT Law. Today we're going to go through a couple of cases. Hopefully you'll find them kind of interesting. And I'm also going to go through the um, something that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago on, or a few weeks ago now on um, uh, uh, Christmas annual shutdowns. So first of all, I'm going to go to the cases. There's, there are a few cases um, in the last couple of weeks, or in fact, the last few days, that I have found absolutely fascinating. I know, massive nerd, I get it. It's all gay, I understand that. Okay, so the first one is about the union being allowed to access non-union employee records. Now, over and over again, we have been told that employers are not to access records that the union has, so employers don't necessarily know who are sus subscribers to the union who aren't. The, <laughs> one might argue that that makes sense. Yeah, it's a private organisation. They shouldn't have to disclose their um, unions, their, their subscribers, just like any other organisation. And, you know, I feel for that. I get that. There has been a recent case, and I mean recent, and, um, uh, back on the 10th of March, so literally like five days ago for me, where the union made an application to access employee records who weren't union subscribers. Now, on the face of it, you think, oh yeah, they're obviously trying to do good, um, they're, they're literally looking for underpayments, uh, shouldn't they be allowed to get employee records? But the answer is, why? Why should they be allowed to get employee records? Why is it that a private organisation gets to see, who's not involved with the employee, um, gets to see that employee's personal data. Um, and this this was kind of played out in court a little while ago and the decision has just been handed down. Now, personally, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea on every level. We don't like our personal data out there. We know that over and over again, um, there can be misuse of that personal data. And why would we why would we be okay with that as individuals? I'm not subscribing to a union, so why should the union get my details? Well, the commission feels the same, but not really. So after a little bit of time, after a very long case and a lot of consideration, um, the commission came to the conclusion that there were records that the union was able to get access to. Now I should clarify, in this case uh, this was about um, getting access in relation to an enterprise bargaining. Now for those of you who are not from Australia or if you, even if you are in Australia and you don't have an enterprise agreement, there is a massive process uh, every four years, um, that, well mostly four years, that organisations and unions go through in order to outline uh, the parameters of the minimum entitlements to that particular business. So, in this case, 
one of the things that was going on during the enterprise bargaining was that there was questions about whether or not there were underpayments. Now, I don't know if there were underpayments. I didn't read the entire case. It was very long. Uh, but <coughs> what I did, because I was more focused on whether or not the records would be released. Look, it's okay for quasi-government organisations like the Fair Work Ombudsman to get access to employee records because they ask for them. They, they are an organisation that is designed to protect employees' entitlements. But this is not about that. This is about a private company getting access to records. Now, the Commission didn't say, sure, and open our doors. Take a look at any records you like. No, the Fair Work Commission, because obviously the employer was resisting this. Um, the, the employer said that what is not going to be accessible or okay to get is anything other than time and wage records. Um, so it was narrowed. So what's not provided, I guess, are the personal details, the employment contracts, uh, any disciplinary matters, disciplinary letters, so employee records. Um, kind of, there's a big scope there. So in this case, the only things that were allowed to be released were rosters, timesheets, and something which everyone called an audit sheet. Now, I still don't like it. don't like it because there is going to be identifiable data there. Um, I, think, I think it's a bad precedent. I think it's a tip of an iceberg. What's stopping other organisations from being do-gooders and saying that they want access to these records? What's stopping the union from... Uh, asking their union subscribers to treat these people differently because they're not part of a union. We've got all sorts of personal data issues that I'm just, you know, not going to go into, but just, just from a relational point of view, um, just like people in politics have very strong views about conservatism or laborism, they're two words, there's bound to be, there are bound to be people out there who are incredibly unionist and are through and through union subscribers and think everybody should be too, otherwise, you know, the world's going to go to pot. And somebody who doesn't believe in unions, who thinks they're a bad idea. Uh, and I'm concerned of the president here that it will just get out of control. But I want to let you know that it's there, it's been out, it's been out for about five days now and lucky us, it's something we actually have to think about some more. So moving to another case. This is a kind of an interesting one because it's been popping up for me a little bit. This is when employers change something about an employee's job and then that employee is so incensed by that change that they feel that they have no choice but to resign. Now, this is called um, forced resignation. Uh, another word for it is constructive dismissal. 
So in this case, um, the Commission had to consider whether or not a false resignation took place. Now, you'd think that'd be easy, right? Yeah, the conduct was such that the employee felt they had no choice but to resign. But the test is quite high. The hurdle is quite high. So the Commission concluded that some action on the part of an employer which is either intended to bring the employment or has probably re the result of bringing the employment relationship to an end in determining whether a termination was at the initiative of the employer, an objective analysis of the employer's conduct is required to determine whether it was of such a nature that resignation was probably going to be the result that the employee had no effective or real choice but to resign. Now, the Commission also considered a different case where it says, although it is an important feature of constructive dismissal, it is not sufficient that the act of the employer results directly or consequently, consequentially in the termination of the employment, there must also be either an intention to force the employee to resign or else conduct must be of such a nature that resignation was probable result. That's a hurdle, guys. I'm hearing more and more that people's jobs are changing and isn't that a dismissal in disguise. Now, in this case, the employee had been complaining for a really long time that they were overworked and eventually what happened was some of her role was taken off her. Pay remained the same, she had a bit of a different reporting structure, she had a little bit of a lessened workload. Now the Commission actually said um, that they are satisfied that they found that a reduction of the applicant's duties was undertaken due to the needs of the business and that the complaint made by the applicant in relation to her excessive workload. So they, ex they accepted that there was a change in operational kind of stuff going on with the business and that they also accepted that this employee had been complaining about her workload. And then the Commission said, in light of my findings, I am satisfied that there was no action on the part of the respondent which was either intended to bring the employment to an end or probable result was bringing the employment relationship to an end, that Ms Williams the, um, her, the applicant in this matter's employment with the respondent was not terminated at the respondent's initiative and it is not the case that Ms Williams resigned from her employment with the respondent but was forced to do so because of the conduct. And this is because over and over again in the decision the respondents keep saying but, but we didn't want her to resign. We were listening to her. We were trying to solve the problem. And we were surprised. And I think they used the word shocked, but it gets thrown around a lot, that she had resigned. So the application failed because the Commission wasn't satisfied of the high hurdle that has to be leaped over by the employee that the, that the conduct of the employer was so bad that they had no choice but to resign. So we think about what could be conduct that is enough to resign, to force somebody to resign. And in many cases, we have to focus on things like work health and safety issues, 
having a high workload is a workout and safety issue, but she was trying, she was complaining about it. Of course she was complaining about it. And the employee was listening. So there was this massive issue about that. Okay, the last case I want to talk about is completely insane, like properly insane. This is, a, this is an HR officer, so an HR employee who was found to be part of significant contraventions. Now this is a restaurant chain and two of its managers engaged in uh, multiple record keeping and underpayment contraventions and they also unreasonably required employees to work in excess of 38 hours per week. Uh, now this HR officer, HR manager was intricately involved in this and I think just for the purposes of moving this podcast along a little bit, this was really about the this, this HR manager <coughs> having the opportunity to put their hand up and go, hey guys, we can't do this. We can't falsify records. <laughs> we can't underpay our employees. That's actually wrong. Um, I'm going to put my hand up and say, dudes, we, this has got to stop. I, I don't want to be a party to this. Um, she never did it. She never said that. In fact, the, the decisions of the, the court just concluded that actually she was a party to this. Not just a passive bystander um, saying nothing, which probably wouldn't get her into this situation, but actually an active participant in this. It is really fascinating. Um, they say that she was personally involved in the payroll process and the payroll instructions produced to the ombudsman exhibited that there was, you know, irregularities in that. So we've got an HR manager who knew, who ought to have known, who did know and was party to contraventions. Now, what would be enough to have removed this person from or her from the, from the list of naughty employers, personally liable, I think putting your head up and saying, no, 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 I don't want to be a party to this. This is wrong and I don't want anything to do with it. Um, okay, she's got a job to do and let's say they force her into it and that might be an argument and probably, give or take, certainly wouldn't get into serious contraventions. <coughs> Excuse me. But she didn't. She was complicit. HR manager, not just the directors, not the CEO, not the CFO, but HR manager was party to this. That is a lesson for all us HR people out there that we can be parties to this, these contraventions. And the workaround, I think, well not workaround, but the way through that for people who don't want to be involved in these contraventions is to pop their hands up and say, no, 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 this is, this is not how it works today. Okay, people, just really quickly, a few weeks ago I talked about um, how the government was going to change a bunch of uh, uh, awards to change how employers interact with employees during Christmas break shutdowns, for instance. And I said that what's going to happen is there's this concept where the employee um, uses uh, doesn't have any leave left doesn't want to go into negative leave balance and doesn't want to take unpaid leave and what do you do? And I said, oh, I don't know, I have to think about this. So I've thought about it some more and I think the only way around it is to pay that employee. Whether you make them turn up to work 
I don't know if that's practical, or you give them leave without pay. Sorry, you give them pay and leave. They're the two options. Honestly, as an employer, my feelings is you make them work. You get them in, make them turn up every day. They want to be paid. They don't want to take leave without pay. Well, that's a matter for them. But if you're paying them, why not get them to do something? It's kind of my feeling. But I wonder if um, this is going to move into the adverse action space. I just don't know. Again, I'm sorry. I've just put up another thing. I don't know anything about this. Look, the fact is there are so many variables and what might happen next and so many different kind of different scenarios that could pop up. But the, the thing that comes to my mind, or the two things that come to my mind, uh, is general protections. Is it adverse? What are you going to do? And is it an adverse action? Does it fit with adverse action? And secondly, the why. Is it discrimination? I know that discrimination doesn't require a why, but I think in this case we need to think about why this person? Why today? Why now? Is it because they can't afford um, to not work? They just simply won't have the money? Uh, is it, what, what's the reason that they, they don't want to work over the Christmas period, but also don't want to go? into the negative leave balance or be relieved without pay. It could be a family responsibility thing. I don't know. I don't know. But there are a lot of variables there and I'd like to see this play out a little bit more in, in practicality. I want to see what happens at the other end at Christmas time when literally thousands of employers wish to take a Christmas break and what happens with those employees. But I don't like it. I think it's all going to make things very difficult. It's going to cause more of a divide between employers and employees is not going to bring them together um, and it's going to make things complicated. Anyway, I should leave on a fun note. Uh, I don't have one. Sorry guys. Oh, quite a fun note. There was another case the other day where a woman was working for her husband and they became ex- is so no longer husband and wife and she sued him for other payments because she was working for him for free i love it i love it so yeah that was a really funny case actually um uh they were um they were allowed to be paid so the employee could pursue underpayment claims against her ex-husband i love it i think that's brilliant I like the ones with husband and wife because they always end in tears. <laughs> Not because I think that's funny, but because isn't this a go-figure moment? Isn't this a should we test? Should I really be contracting with my partner on now that I'm separated from them? I don't know. I'd be interested to see out there how many of these work because as of course as an employment lawyer, what I get is they don't work. Anyway. Thank you everyone for watching the Lawcast one more time. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Hopefully you guys have a brilliant break and thanks for watching the Lawcast. Thanks a lot. See you later.